It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Google overparenting and the top search results read Five Signs of Overparenting, The Abuse of Overparenting, and The Overparenting Crisis. The idea that we're trying to provide a perfect happy childhood for our kids is well documented. So how can we avoid this sort of parenting on steroids? Some say it's making it harder for kids to grow up. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The way kids are being raised in America today is different than it used to be. Parents now play the role of friend in their kids' lives. Mom and dad often step in to combat any discomfort their child may experience, and parents are giving up their own lives to go to every baseball game, ballet practice, or tournament. Polly Young Eisendrath says it's not all bad, it's just part of our culture. We're sort of short on miracles in this culture, and so childbirth, having a child and raising a child has become the biggest miracle. And so people are investing in their children as though they were God. So what's the happy middle ground between overparenting and underparenting? Are parents fixing things too much or giving out too many gold stars? We dug into the archives for this lighthearted and instructional conversation held in 2012. Journalist Katie Couric leads the discussion with psychotherapist and writer Lori Gottlieb, psychologist and author Madeline Levine, and Polly Young Eisendrath. She wrote The Self-Esteem Trap, Raising Confident and Compassionate Kids in an Age of Self-Importance. Katie Couric begins by asking a question for the entire panel. Levine answers first, followed by Gottlieb, and then Young Eisendrath. Here's Katie Couric. I wanted to ask um, the basic question is, when we talk about overparenting, what does that mean exactly to each of you? Madeline, why don't you start? Um, I think of overparenting as having three components. So when you do something your child can already do, you've overparented um, because you've taken away the opportunity to do something the child's capable of. That means he feels confident. That means he has true self-esteem, not this sort of bastardized idea of self-esteem. So don't do what your kid can already do. And don't do what is just outside of your kid's area of expertise. We call it the zone of proximal learning because that's where a kid pushes themselves a little bit. And if you need to step in, if they can't get it, you can step in, but let them have a shot at it. And I'd say the third idea about overparenting that I have is when it's really your own needs that are being met as opposed to your kids' needs. And I asked Katie if it was okay to tell you this very quick story. So um, sitting in my office and I've got a dad and um, a very bright son sitting in the office with me and the kid is trying to decide where to go to college and um, he's list and really smart, he's going to a top tier school and he's listing all the schools that he's interested in and he's leaving out the Ivy League, it's kind of noticeable. And um, finally he says, well, and maybe Harvard and the dad jumps off the couch and says, I would give my left testicle to get my son into Harvard. <laughs> and, and that, that's an example of, that's the father's need. The kid has his own developmental needs of growing up and going to school and figuring out who he is. He doesn't have to worry about his father's gonads. So when, <laughs> when, when, when you find yourself sort of um, putting your own stuff in as opposed to really listening to your kid, that's over parenting too. My triarchic 
Um, you know, I, I agree with everything Madeline said, and overparenting really comes from a place of anxiety. I like this father with his testicle. Um, <laughs> and, and, and an example of it, I think sometimes it's easier to describe with example, is, um, so I wrote this article called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness May Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods for the Atlantic. And um, one of the examples in that piece was um, a preschool teacher that I interviewed said, you know, the parents are the ones who are so anxious. So um, a kid comes into preschool, the parents are signing the kid in, kid runs over to the sandbox, picks out a dub truck that he likes, the other kid in the sandbox grabs it from him. They kind of, you know, have a little back and forth over the dump truck. The kid finally gives him, like, this other crappy truck and says, no, this one's for you. And so the mother has a fit over this. The mother's like, that's not fair. The good one was his. And the preschool teacher has to kind of talk the mom down not to go over there and try to orchestrate this thing between the kids. Well, that's what overparenting is, what Madeline said. The kids could handle it. The kid was resilient. The kid was flexible. The mother was not. Yeah, actually, I agree with everything that's been said already, and I would only add a, a couple of uh, kind of uh, maybe refinements of, of that. One would be that uh, that kind of interfering or running interference deprives kids of learning from their direct experience. They're learning instead some kind of distraction, and that distraction might be the parent running interference in a situation in school. It might be what I call drunk praise where the parent says, great job, that was terrific, when it really wasn't or that's just a statement for filling space. And when you take in a lot of junk praise, you want more junk praise. It's like junk food. And so you can build a kind of a, an atmosphere of interfering with the child being able to concentrate by doing this kind of junk praise. Uh, I have my own little story to tell, which is a, a very good example from my side of the uh, where I live in Vermont. So I, I get a call from a woman who's uh, a nurse and, and obviously feeling kind of desperate about her son. And she says, you know, I've read your book and I'd like to uh, come in and talk to you about my son because I'd like him to see you in therapy. And so I say, well, how old is he? Um, 39. <laughs> I say, you know, I, I expect he probably could call me himself and probably could come in and talk to me. And she said, well, she said, you know, I think I need to come in and kind of set it up and tell you what's going on. I said, well, therapy's a confidential relationship. She said, but you wouldn't have to tell him, you know. And I said, I would only do that if, you know, if you, were, if you had a dependent child. She said, well, he moved home when he was 31. He is a dependent child. <laughs> so it was, you know, and, and this, this is an absolutely true story. And I felt for the mom. I mean, she was really desperate. He was a kid who had graduated from an elite university, computer programmer, had done very well, and then kind of crashed and burned, moved home, and had not moved out. So um, that's my story on so overparenting. So when, when did this whole trend of overparenting start? Did it start? with kind of the free to be you and me, everybody gets a trophy at soccer practice. And you know, and when it, and can you pinpoint a moment in time where this seemed to develop? Because I was raised very differently than the way I'm raising my kids. And was it in the early 90s? When was it, Madeline? I think it was a little earlier than that. Yeah, I think it, um, uh, look, uh, I'm, I'm 
an old, old baby boomer, but it's younger baby boomers. You know, what did we have on our walls? We had, you do your thing, I do my thing. I'm not here to live up to your expectations. You're not here to live up to mine. It was sort of like this highly individualistic, we're so special, um, never trust anyone over 30. And so that's the 60s. And then the 70s, you have um, greed, you know, Wall Street, greed is good. And so I think there was kind of a shift away from a collective feeling about what parenting was and people were moving all over the place. The rabbi or the priest didn't stop by anymore. Um, and there was um, just a shift in what was valued. And metrics became incredibly important. So how much you made, did your kid get an A? Um, any way that you could measure yourself because the old way of measuring yourself was kind of within the community. You know, the pillar of the community. That was the good guy. Now it's the guy who makes the most money. Every kid knows how to figure out the cost of the house and stuff like that. So I, I think it's somewhere around the intersection of um, our own sense of incredible specialness and entitlement and, um, uh, and a deteriorating culture that has become increasingly reliant on metrics for measuring how well you're doing. Polly, I know you've, you've studied the self-esteem movement. Yeah. When did that happen and what well, was it exactly? Well, it was in exactly? the 70s, you know. I mean, in the 70s, there was a movement that was an educational movement. It was in the schools. It was a parenting movement. And it was kind of like, you know, you can do anything. You're, you're great. And I actually went to graduate school during that time. And so when I came into graduate school, I had young children. And I was parenting them more or less the way my mother had. And I came from a strict background, working class background. And uh, then I went to graduate school. And uh, um, I changed everything. And I was praising them and putting the stuff on the refrigerator and all the gold stars and so on. And I think that was really the shift over. It's when my children start identifying me as a person who didn't really want to be a parent, wanted to be a friend. And I think there was that kind of shift in the culture. By the way, I think all of this is really cultural. I, I don't think there's any blame for it. I don't think there's any, any reason why parents should feel ashamed or self, sort of self-conscious about it, because we did it together, and we did it for good reasons. And I, I also think what was happening there in the 70s was um, the baby boomers' uh, you know, desire to correct what happened in our childhood, where we weren't mirrored, and we weren't seen, and we wanted so much to raise a child who would be like a perfect flower, would just open up and you know bring sunshine to the world. And it just worked out to be quite the opposite, actually. But I, that movement then kind of segued into the things that Madeline was talking about in terms of other effects in the culture. And then I think to top it off, one of the things that I've observed is that we're sort of short on miracles in this culture, and so childbirth, having a child and raising a child has become the biggest miracle. And so people are investing in their children as though they were God, you know, I mean, this is the miracle. And it, this, I think, is a fairly recent thing, that particular, the miracle aspect. Right. Which, and we'll talk about sort of how this has been manifested more, but you, you guys have some funny stories. I mean, I gave the graduation address at UVA this year, and I talked about the fact that Teresa Sullivan, the reinstated president of UVA, told me a story about how a kid who graduated from the Darden School of Business went on a job interview and brought his mother with him. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you have all sorts of stories. 
entertain us for a minute, will you? And tell us some funny stories about like parenting on steroids, where it's so embarrassing. Well, you do well, know that it's confidential, Laura. Right? <laughs> oh, well, you don't have to give any names. Um, well, well, I mean, this is this, these are some things through through my reporting as opposed to my therapy practice, so not <laughs> confidential. Um, there's a, a school in Los Angeles where the parents, one parent complained to the head of school that um, the kids were getting the comments on their papers in red pen, and apparently this was very traumatizing to this person's child. The red was, you know, felt felt very um, uncomfortable for this child, and asked if the comments would not be in red. And at the same school, this uh, the headmaster was asked if, when a kid got a boo boo, um, if in pre-K or K, um, if they could use red washcloths so that um, the kids would not have to see their blood on the washcloth. Red is and, a big theme here. And, and yeah. there's, a, there's a red theme with this, and those were different parents, by the way. Um, but, but I think that, that, you know, that speaks to, to the kind of anxiety that, you know, should our kids experience any kind of discomfort, that we're going to go in and solve the problem. And kids who have their problems solved for them don't believe that they can solve problems. And the truth is they can't. They have no experience solving problems because mom and dad have always fixed it. Why do you think baby boomers in particular are living so vicariously through their kids and can't seem to tolerate their kids' unhappiness? I mean, what is it about this particular segment of the population that we're seeing this so prevalent in? What do you consider to be a baby boomer? Because I, I think there are people younger someone, than that who are I, parents. Well, I'm 55, so I'm kind of on the, sorry, Madeline, love <laughs> baby boomers. So what is it? I forget the actual age fan, but what is it, like 50? Sorry? 1946. To 64? To, like, no, yeah. like, yeah, to, is it to 64? No. no I think it's like to 60, right? So there are parents out there. Who are is younger? Forty-six to what? Than baby boomers, yes. and I don't 64? know. Sixty-four. Gloria's. Yeah, oh, those are really young baby I'm boomers. Not, okay. You're, you're. Oh, you're an ex. Okay. So yeah. Uh, but you know, I think a lot of parents are are afraid of having their kids not like them, which is a big thing. You know, they don't want their kids to feel like they're like the mean parent. Um, but because, why? Because I think that that for a lot of us, it's, it's, as Wendy Mogul said, um, you know, she has this great line: "Our children are not our masterpieces." But I think in a lot of ways, we feel like they are. That they're very fragile. That they are an extension of us in a way that in previous generations they weren't considered. And that um, you know, we like to say. I mean, can I say something you said from breakfast today about? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Katie, Katie has, a, has a very accomplished daughter, and, and she was saying that it, it actually makes her feel good to say that her daughter goes to Yale. Um, and it does. <laughs> I admit it. But, and that's so normal. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, there's where's the line between sort of, you know, parental pride and then getting our own sense of the holes in our own lives filled by the accomplishments of our children. Right. And what about, um, I, well, Lori, let's talk about sort of the changing social fabric of society and right. why parents gravitate to their children sort of for their whole world right. opposed to what it was like. And Madeline, you can jump in here. Yeah, well, one of the things I think about that is that um, we're doing a very bad job of presenting adulthood as something to strive for. So I had three, I have three sons, which meant I spent years, if not decades, in the bleachers, 
because that's what everybody did. I mean, they were on the select team, and you see, I got that in. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I went, like every other parent, to see them every, every week for years, because there's a big age difference between them. And at some point, I realized, like, um, my husband who's in the audience here, I was going to the East Bay of uh, the Bay Area and he was going up north and we hadn't seen each other for weekends at a time. Um, and what did we do? We sort of sat passively in the bleachers week after week after week watching children play a game. And when I realized that and realized I could have had brunch with my husband, I could have spent some time with a girlfriend, I could have um, learned something about Broadcasting or jewelry making. <laughs> or you could have written another book. I could have written, yeah. you know, sort of more downtime for myself. And, and I thought about it in terms of how attractive does that look as a model of adulthood? That your mom has nothing to do every single solitary weekend <laughs> but watch you mm -hmm. kick a ball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thank <laughs> in the bleachers. And if you turn it around, you know, if you think about what would it be like, you know, like I like folding laundry, right? So what would it be like if I said to my kids, you know, I really enjoy folding laundry. I'm pretty good at it. So for the next, you know, six months on Saturday morning, we're going to watch me fold. <laughs> so, so, you know, we've lost the sense of, I think, what it means to be an adult and have adult pursuits because we're so terrified that if we take a minute off, our, our kid will not have the leg up that they would have had if we were on constant observation of them. And it, it, it's a big mistake. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, The Perils of Overparenting. The conversation was held in 2012 at the Aspen Ideas Festival and features psychologist Polly Young Eisendrath, journalist Katie Couric, best-selling author Madeline Levine, and psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb. Find Aspen Ideas To Go on your favorite podcast app. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, NPR One, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, and more. Scroll through our archives and learn about everything from cybersecurity and American history to how to eat well and live your best life. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the show. Here's Katie Couric. And this morning, Lori, we were talking about the fact that I mean, I think there's probably a happy middle ground, which we can talk about later, between over-parenting and under-parenting and being right. completely detached. Right. But we were talking about in the 50s and 60s, your sort of your social sphere did not revolve so much around your kids. Right. And now today, it's really so child-centric that a lot of parents don't have a life beyond that. That's right, and you know, there's a, there's a difference between being loved and constantly monitored, and what we do is we constantly monitor our children, and we think that we're showing them that we love them by doing that, but actually, um, it doesn't have that effect on them. And 
in the what we were talking about this morning was that when you look at the divorce rate, when you look at um, the number of single parents out there, you look at parents who don't have their own lives, as Madeline said, um, they get a lot of gratification from their children. Part of it is that we're friendlier with our children than previous generations. There's less of a hierarchy, and in some ways that's good, and in some ways it, it can get a little enmeshed. Um, so, you know, we, we treat our kids like friends, and then we don't spend time with our own friends. Um, we enjoy their company, which is nice, but if we depend on their company, that's maybe where we're crossing the line. You know, a long time ago, Freud wrote an essay called On Narcissism, and it starts out saying that parental love is fundamentally narcissistic. That seems to be a surprise to people these days. You know, they think of it as a selfless love, like I'm giving my selfless love to someone. Actually, what you're doing is you're sort of producing an extension of yourself that you don't feel bad boasting about, you know? <laughs> and so there's this way in which you can indulge your boastfulness about this extension of yourself and you don't seem to be boasting about yourself. And I think there's a kind of cultural setup about that now that makes it, you know, I have been sitting back, not saying anything about my children, and I have also a grandson who is really great, but you know, I've, I've worked hard not to say that in ways that I think are, you know, not useful, not useful. It's like we don't think about the words we use often in conversation about our children. We probably do think carefully about ourselves because it would be embarrassing to boast about yourself, how great you are at folding laundry. You yes, know, but, you don't think other people would like to hear that. When you, when you look but, at Facebook and people are posting what they yes, post about their they, children, and that's where you can see what Polly's talking yeah. about, which is, which by the way, I've done too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look at my son doing this. But you see these, these you know, my, my child, this is not me, by the way, but, um, but you'd see people who would post things like, look at my child at the science fair who won this, or look at my child playing the violin at age four, you know, whatever it is, and then how many likes do you get? And then we get a little narcissistic hit from all the little likes that, you know, or all the comments that people make, because it is a reflection on us. And if you look at the posts on Facebook and you look at how many people, you know, do you really want to go to, if you went to your friend's house in the old days and they got out the photo albums and they started flipping through all these albums and showing you the videos of their kids right. and all of that, you would think these people are narcissists. They're crazy. What are they doing? But that's what people are doing on Facebook every day. Well, how much have real world problems fed into this? Because I've sort of thought about, you know, what's happening externally that's creating this problem. And, you know, I think about sort of the safety and security issues of raising kids today. You know, I used to ride my banana cedar all mm. over Arlington, Virginia for hours and hours and hours when I was a kid. And my parents were like, whatever. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like because of all the issues with child safety and pedophiles and predators, you, you know, you feel that you have to be for safety reasons more attached to your child and also for economic reasons. You know, I think we've heard so many times that our kids are going to be less well off than their parents' generation. So you feel, gosh, I have to make sure my kid can compete in, you know, in the future. So I have to give him or her every possible advantage. So aren't there a lot of external factors for creating this anxiety that makes people overparent? But one of the really interesting issues that you just raised was it, it felt safe for you back then. It's actually safer safe now. Safer now. Mm -hmm. It um, is safer. So now. the, the yeah. observation that there's pedophiles out there and there's you know things to be afraid of, um, you know, frankly, it's it's 
the news that brings that to us 24 hours a day that makes people feel. Don't look at me when you say that, Madeline. <laughs> that makes That's cable news. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, uh, well, maybe it's also maybe it's also the anxiety that the parent feels that is so much. You know, my parents knew that there were there were things that weren't safe, but they weren't constantly focused on that. They were focused on their own lives and their whatever they were about. So you know, it is the fact that that it's safer now. Right, but. but but go ahead. Well, you know, your your kid has you know statistically your kid has more of a chance of being injured in a car that you are driving. <laughs> that you are actually, you know, driving your child, right. then you know, having one of these other terrible things befall them. Um, but I think that because we're, you know, we're on the internet all the time, because we're watching the news 24 hours a day, all of those things, we feel like it's everywhere. And and so, you know, it makes sense that we want to protect our kids. But the other part of it is we don't have the community protecting us in the same way. So yeah. we're very individualistic mm -hmm. now in terms of the way we raise our children. We're, the kids are not going out to play in the neighborhood. We don't have, because many in many households two parents are working we don't have sort of the moms talking over the fence and you know that kid down the street and you'll protect him because you know all the moms right. kind of know all the kids in the neighborhood right. so we don't feel like we have that supervision that that we had what about the economy madeline we were talking about that this morning too this sort of feeling that oh my god my kids got to compete we're losing you know the race and global competition and the job market is so you know, jobs are right. so scarce, I have to make sure my child achieves, achieves, achieves. Right, so everybody's concerned about their child being able to support themselves um, and, and get a job, and, and actually we're doing the exact things that would get in the way of our children being successful that way. And I think I told you I was on a panel with uh, one of the chief engineers of NASA, and he was quite forthcoming about his three groups of engineers, which were Asian engineers, Indian engineers, and American engineers. And um, so I said, you know, the obvious question, which is like, are we really falling behind? Are our skills not as great? And he said, it has nothing to do with our skills. Our skills are every bit as good as, as other nations. What we don't have are the kind of 21st century skills that are mandatory. American kids aren't collaborating. American kids aren't as motivated. They're the first ones knocking on the door saying, I've been here three months, where's my pay raise? Um, they're the first ones who say, I can't solve the problem, whereas other kids just will stay all night long if it takes staying all night long. So I, don't, I think every time we step in unnecessarily, every time we don't allow our kids to um, have unstructured play, every time we don't allow them to um, experience what I call an unsuccessful failure, you know, every one of us, is my guess, has been guilty of bringing up the lost homework, right? Has anybody here never brought up the homework not left? I, I mean, I have, so you know, I assume most of you have. In fact, that would be a successful failure. A 10-year-old can cope with the anxiety that comes with, oh my god, you know, ma, I don't have my homework. You, you'll live, you know, and then the kid has to figure that out for themselves. And, and we're getting in the way of all those kinds of things that we call, at the end of the day, resilience. And that's what creativity, resilience, collaboration, motivation, right. that's the whole ball of wax that everybody's talking about. The only other thing I'd want to say about that, Katie, is um, I've been a psychologist for almost 35 years. This idea that our kids should do as well as us, um, I can't say that uh, affluent people are a particularly happy group of people. 
I can't say that they're a particularly unhappy group of people, but this idea that your kid has to, you know, the American story is every generation does better, right? Well, this generation may not. And the question is, so what? Because it, you need, mm -hmm. you, you, mm -hmm. thank you, scatter. Um, <laughs> Um, you make $70,000 or more, that makes a difference. You make $700 million, it doesn't make much of a difference. Yeah. The, the issue about happiness kind of enters into all of this, you know. I mean, I think that, that parents want their children to do well because they assume that that will increase their happiness, that somehow their sense of satisfaction in life will be deepened. And um, I have a little story to tell about somebody who came to see me in therapy somebody I called Jason in the book. He was 24 years old in Vermont just for the summer because he was working with the landscape architect. He had graduated from an elite university. He's very, very good looking, had a family name that you'd recognize, and he'd spent a year abroad in China. All these things are sort of requisite these days, I think, for a certain kind of young person. And um, he called me up and he said that um, he wanted to see a Jungian analyst. And he was a young man, and I said, okay, I am one, and he said, okay, can I come in and see you? So he came in, turned out he um, majored in economics, so he was pretty naive about therapy, and uh, um, he, uh, <laughs> so he didn't present his story in a way that was very glossed over. So he sat down across from me and he said, I suffer from feelings of superiority. <laughs> now, nobody had ever said that to me in therapy. And I said, well, tell me more. And he said, you know, I have noticed that when I meet somebody, at first I'm interested in them, at first I'm interested in getting to know them, and, you know, I find them attractive or I find them, you know, um, engaging. And then some period of time passes, and I begin to deconstruct them. And I see every way that they're not as good-looking as I am, as intelligent, as well-educated. They don't have this, they don't have that. And he said, inside of two months, they're empty and I throw them away. And he said, because of that, I am not, I have decided that I cannot even meet people socially. I don't go out anymore. So he was feeling ashamed. He was trying to hang back, cover up this feeling of superiority after all of this privilege. Now, he was one of the reasons I decided to write the book. I mean, I did end up seeing him in therapy. His suffering was tremendous. His parents would not have understood he was his mother's favorite. So, you know, in a certain sort of way, he's a good example of somebody who everybody wanted to do well. You know, his family wanted him to do well. And over time, I've come to know that he became a therapist. He, he went through well, law school and, and, you know, <laughs> and he went through law school and it didn't work. He tried to do a rock band and that didn't work. So he's become a therapist. Um, and I, you know, I think now he's relatively happy because he's dealing with the suffering of life. And but but, but you know. you're also talking about, I think, uh, is it okay? If I yeah, go yeah. for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're, you're talking about this incredibly narrow version of success that we have. Like, right. you know, you, you, you listed all his, thank you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. credentials and stuff like that. Right. But I think, I think we are so wrong about what yes. we consider a successful life. And that so many of the kids that I see also, you know, they, the press privileged opened with a girl who had incised the word empty into her mm -hmm. arm, you know, yeah. cut herself, which by the way, 17% of kids on, 
Ivy League campuses are, are self-mutilating. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. there is a absolute epidemic, epidemic, mm -hmm. epidemic of um, kids who are having sig really significant problems. Um, high school girls, 25% are uh, clinically depressed. 25% of kids on college campuses are not substance users, but substance abusers. 17% mm -hmm. self-mutilating. So, the, and I think that part of that has to do with, if, if all you have is that narrow view, and if that's all people see about you, if you can't really see the child in front mm -hmm. of you, what their talents are, hands-on, creative, mm -hmm. all the different things that kids come with, you end up putting kids under enormous pressure, enormous and they pressure. end up feeling completely inauthentic. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. when in Lori's article, how how not to land your kid in therapy, right? Yeah. Um, you start by talking about a twenty-something exactly. patient who, you know, unlike patients from yesteryear, talked about how screwed up their parents' parenting was or their parents were. Right. Had great parents, had every advantage. Right. And yet felt incredibly empty. Can yeah. you talk about that patient a little bit? Because yeah. you talked about her in the article. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, usually, what you, when you're in graduate school, you're hearing all about you know what parents didn't give their kids. You know, the sort of the the dismissive parent, the critical mm -hmm. parent, the neglectful parent. And I was getting all of these kids. I say kids, young adults coming in, saying, "Oh, I had great parents. My parents are my best friends <laughs> in the whole world." And you know they did everything for me. They were at the birthday parties. They did the homework with me. They drove me here. They listened to all of my feelings. They gave me a choice about this, that, and the other thing. Um, when they let me take guitar lessons when I wanted to take guitar, and they let me quit when I didn't like it anymore. Um, you know all all of those things that they were running interference on. Um, and yet here now you get the kids, and they're newly out of college, or some of them are in their early 30s even. And they feel depressed, they feel anxious, they have trouble making decisions about little things and big things. Um, they have trouble committing mm -hmm. to a path because when you make a commitment to one path, you're closing off another path. And they have a lot of trouble not having that option open for them because when they were younger, you don't like guitar, quit it, go do something else. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of depression and anxiety in this group that seems to have really really loving, really well-intentioned parents. And I think the problem is that what parents are doing is very loving and well-intentioned, but it's not helping their kids. It's not, as Madeline said, you know, what is our definition of success? They, they, they did all the right things to um, live up to our culture's definition of success, but inside they never really cultivated those things like um, you know, disappointment, failure. Failure's a great motivator, by the way. Um, you know, humility. Um, as you want the parents to instill in the kids that you are special to me, but not your special, meaning you're better than everybody else. And they get out in the world and they're not better than everybody else and they don't know what to do with it. One of the things we talked about also at breakfast is sort of there's no room today, it seems to me, for an ordinary or average mm -hmm. child. It seems if you get a B, you're a failure in this kind of hyper, um, you know, parenting mode or hyper achievement. Mode that we've gotten our kids involved with. Tell Madeline the story about when you tried to have that seminar for some parents in California. Okay, so I, um, I do a lot of speaking and um, it's usually fairly well attended, but I gave a talk entitled The Average Child in Marin <laughs> County. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and 
that's the end of the story. Nobody came. Not one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which I guess means there is not a single average child in the entire county of Marin. But the fact of the matter is, you guys were saying to me that 80% of people, children sure, and right. people, are average. Right. No, and, but why know, can't we tolerate people who are not exceptional? Well, so, there's a pressure now to be extraordinary, and that has come with this whole sort of self-esteem movement in which, you know, kids feel that they have to show up with something very special in order to fulfill the sense that there is something extraordinary about them. And that puts them in a frame of mind that is really kind of a relentless pressure and an enormous amount of self-focus, like focusing back on the self again and the self-conscious emotions, most of which are quite negative, like envy and shame and guilt and jealousy and self-pity. These emotions are very high in this group and it's often classified as depression, but actually it's more of a shame-based kind of collection of self-conscious feelings and so in these these kids that have had all these advantages they end up actually be, being obsessed with themselves with a sense that somehow they can't be just ordinary where actually being ordinary is a great relief because and more, then, and more pragmatically yeah. a lot of the things parents are doing are not effective like the Einstein videos yeah. or specializing in a sport getting a kid to start going to soccer camp when he or she is three years old right. and all these kind of hyper parenting activities you're you're telling me early intervention isn't really effective early intervention well I, I think the culture is earlier is better more is better and mm -hmm. and actually that's absolutely not true um, and and um, I, I know I'm not supposed to be geeky but um, the no, data... No, you can be geeky. I told you you can use your data. <laughs> I can use my data. The, you know, you, your child watches Baby Einstein, they learn um, 10 fewer words per hour of watching Baby Einstein. You put your child in a play-based preschool, three years later they are doing much better academically than if they went to an academic preschool. Child, mm -hmm. early specialization in athletics, you know, talk to any orthopedist and you have repetitive stress injuries on very young children. Um, our own ch child had needed knee surgery by 18 from being a, a catcher. So it's, it's as if we think we're going to fool development. Mm -hmm. So what does what a young child need? A young child needs to play um, because it's in play that the world gets miniaturized and they learn how to do stuff. Um, they, and it's social. You know, you take something as absolutely ordinary as the game of chase, which looks like nothing's happening, right? They're just running around. But you got a chaser and a chasey and a negotiation about who's the leader, when's this the game, I don't want to play anymore, game's over, you know, and now I have nobody to play with. This is the work of early childhood, not learning words a few months earlier because it doesn't matter. You know, mm -hmm. Finland, which is the exemplar of education in the world at this point, doesn't even start teaching kids until they're seven years old. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I have a, just a slight um, thing I want to say about, we're always incredibly careful not to say to parents, you didn't do anything wrong, right? Mm -hmm. and, and because we're all shrinks and we don't, we don't want to make people feel worse, you know, it just <laughs> makes them feel a lot worse. <laughs> well, it just makes them feel a lot worse, but, but I think, and, and I don't know how people feel about this, we have enough data at this point <clears throat> that um, if you're ignoring it, you know, if your child has no 
downtime. If your child is not sleeping nine hours a night, which every single neuroscientist in this country will tell you is necessary for optimal brain development, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's not to say you're a bad parent, but I think that there is enough information out there at this point that we could, if, if we had the will, and, and if we weren't so afraid that it was going to um, knock our kids down a bit, that we would be more proactive. Well, it's and a little hard to apply a corrective, though. This is what I find in talking to parents, because there's this, within this sort of perfectionism around parenting, and I, I like Judith Warner's book, you know, The um, Perfect Madness, which compares sort of mothers in America and mothers in France and the way we're doing it. Within that framework, it's like parents right away feel like I've got to get it right now doing this. And that is still another level of trying to interfere. I mean, I think we have to start a new conversation, which mm -hmm. is what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Bring in the kind of information and then see what we can do to muddle through to change the culture without making anybody feel too bad about what, because everybody's trying to do their best. That's One thing the, I think is important to point out, because when I saw Race to Nowhere, you know, I was really, which is sort of about uh, homework and right. the pressure kids face today, you know, I wanted to know if these were just problems that were particular to a specific socioeconomic level. And I think the Aspen Institute sometimes doesn't, isn't as inclusive as it could be in terms of lower socioeconomic issues in America. And so this really does transcend class because a lot of parents from all different income mm -hmm. levels are putting this kind of pressure on kids. Is that and right? That, and, and, right. Also, and also, you know, the other side of the coin is there's the earlier, more, better that, that Madeline was talking about, but there's also the parents who are redshirting their kids, which means that they're waiting an extra year before they send them to kindergarten so that they will be a year older and that they will have a competitive advantage over um, you know, the other kids in the class. They say that it's because, oh, my, my child just needs more social growth. But what do you do with the parents when we're talking about socioeconomics? Um, you know, that's, a, that's something that you have to be able to afford, first of all. So you can't redshirt a kid if the kid is, is kindergarten age and what are you going to do, pay another whatever you're paying for childcare um, for that year because that's an entire year of expenses? Well, a lot of families don't have that. Um, so it's kind of a you know, high class problem, but again, it's because of the edge. And so this never happened. When you were five, you went to kindergarten. Now we have seven-year-old people turning seven in kindergarten, and they're this tall, and nobody thinks that's ridiculous. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that about this average um, idea, is that a lot of psychologists nowadays are getting kids sent to them. It used to be that when kids were sent mm -hmm. to a psychologist by the school, it was kind of, you know, it was something that the psychologist was probably going to have to give some bad news, like your child has a learning disability or something like that. Now, that is what the parents want to hear. They want to hear yeah. your child is dyslexic, your child has sensory processing disorder, whatever it is, your child is a visual learner but not a spatial learner, whatever it is, um, because that explains the B plus. Yeah. That 
that explains why your kid is average, even though B plus is above average technically. But that helps them feel okay about the fact that their child is not the star of the class. So if they can get this label, then it helps them. And psychologists are really flummoxed by this because why do parents want their kids to have this label? Why is it something that, that kids are, you know, that parents are hoping for? Um, and it's, it's again because it says that their kids are not way above average and they can't accept that that's just what it is. But I think Katie's point, and I think it's a really important one, is we're talking about issues that affect an incredibly narrow um, part of society in terms of having the time and the resources and all of that. However, it's also true that um, we did a study at Stanford and looked at anxiety levels around kids taking multiple AP courses and kids trying to pass the high school exit exam. And the level of stress was equivalent. And um, so, so the, the stress is, is going on, the resources that people have are very different. But the level of stress at school, which was never the ne number one stressor as long as I've been a shrink um, in a child's life. It was always, you know, think back to your own adolescence. What was your stressor? It was, you know, my parents are throwing pots at each other or... Um, or my friend didn't let me sit at the lunch table. That's exactly right. Yeah. But now the number one stressor, regardless of SES, is, is school. Mm -hmm. But um, even so, when you look at mainstream magazines like Parents Magazine, Parenting Magazine, when you look at the cover stories nowadays, there are things like boost your newborn's brain. And you know that was not on the cover of parenting magazines when I was a baby, because my mother you know, had, had different parenting magazines. So I think that it's all focused on you know, achievement and success. And, and again, as Madeline said, this very, and Polly too, this very narrow definition of you know, what are we trying to do as parents with our children. And that's where the overparenting comes from. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. One of today's speakers, Lori Gottlieb, is featured in another Aspen Ideas Festival talk about kids. She was on stage in 2012 for a conversation called, What is the Goal of Parenting? For, for a very long time, parents have wanted their kids to be happy. So the goal hasn't changed, but the meaning of that goal has changed. What does happiness mean for our kids nowadays? Gottlieb speaks with co-founder of the Families and Work Institute, Ellen Galinsky, psychologist Lawrence Cohen, Yale Law professor Amy Chua, and educator Erica Christakis. Find their conversation on our website, aspenideas.org. There's also a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Katie Couric. So what are the ramifications of this? You know, we raise these kids, they get to be in their 20s, so they they seem to have a tendency towards depression or emptiness or kind of a, no sense of purpose, right? Because they haven't developed these coping skills, yet they feel entitled, right. which is a bad combo, as right. we discussed. So so what what is happening to these kids? And, and what is happening more macrocosmically in terms of global competition? I think it's behind the childhood obesity crisis because we've become short order cooks and giving our kids whatever they'll eat yeah. instead of what my mom did was you're yeah. eating your peas or you're not leaving the table. Yeah. 
you know, instead we're like saying, oh, well, you want pasta with butter? Let me fix that for you. You don't, you don't have to eat what I've already prepared. I mean, so, so what is it doing for them personally? And also what is it doing right. to the country at large? I, I well, think that the, the, the big question is, is sort of what is it doing for them in terms of their, their internal world? So we can talk about, you know, what does it do for them? Can they choose a career? Can they succeed in all these other ways? But I think where it hurts them the most is in their interpersonal relationships. I think that when we say we want our kids to be happy, we assume that they're going to have a, a fulfilling relationship. We assume that they're going to have a nice group of friends that they can count on and get support from. Um, but if they don't have the tools for that, because we've been so focused on these other things, um, you know, they're really going to suffer in, in this, in this, you know, the, what really are the most important realms of life. Well, and they suffer a lot in character development, in lying and cheating and stealing and not knowing what's wrong with that because it, that seems to them to be a kind of victimless crime because there isn't an understanding of the social fabric. Like, you know, I, I, um, part-time I consult to a military university and they have a very strong honor code. And it's kind of interesting as a Buddhist to be consulting to a military university because <laughs> I've learned a lot. And I have really learned how discipline and how training for honor and so on are very close to a lot of things that I cherish. And one thing that can happen there when I'm there is I can leave my keys in my car. I can leave my computer in the car. Because actually the honor code works. And that seems a little shocking. You know, I mean, this is Vermont. So, you know, it might not happen some other place, but I think there's a real misunderstanding among young people about the value of having a social fabric that holds up the whole community and allows you to relax. You know, you could just actually relax when you're with people that aren't lying to you, aren't going to steal, aren't going to cheat. That's kind of almost an unknown right now. Uh, nobody believes it, you know, that it could be possible. And all of the research on ethics and values in young people show this trend and that it's developing among all social classes. And so, you know, in a part that might also be related to the fact that, you know, where the churches and synagogues used to be, there are shopping malls. So we're, we're also in this kind of period of time where there's a kind of materialism at every level and everybody suffers from it. And I, I think that the parenting trends that we've been talking about that leave children without certain kinds of skills, interpersonal skills, community skills, character skills, also then trans those things will translate into them as parents. Do you see the pendulum shifting? Because certainly there are a lot of articles about this and a lot of people writing about it. And is there kind of a middle ground between parenting like Betty Draper and like the mother, and like the mother who goes to the job interview with the Darden, you know, the UVA business school student. You know, can you give some, some really sort of practical advice for parents who want to let their child, let their children fail? And, uh, you know, well, they don't want to let their children fail, but, you know, want to yeah. give them the opportunity. Want, yeah. yeah. Want to let I want my kids to fail. I do. Yeah. But, no, yeah. I mean, you know, who want, want to teach them resiliency right. and want to teach them the ability to bounce back right. from, from setbacks in life. So what would you tell parents? It, you know, the, the research is um, that the, the best thing you can do as a parent is be reliable, available, consistent, and non-interfering. 
And um, I think that, that if you keep those four things in mind, um, you know, it's not so complicated. I mean, people have been raising kids like for a very long, forever. <laughs> you know, it, I, and, and, and we've professionalized parenting. And I think um, the one thing to remember in this discussion, Katie, that hasn't come up is every child's different. And so one child may need uh, a certain amount of help, and another child you may just be getting in the way. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to leave the discussion without acknowledging that the best thing you can do is have a clear vision of who your particular child is. And then I think if you're available and consistent and not interfering and reliable, you'll... And also you don't see your child's, your child's achievements you. as your achievements. I mean, isn't well, there yeah. sort yeah. of a healthy distance, Lori? Yeah, there, there is. I think, you know, there's, there's this, um, you know, Winnicott came up with the good enough mm -hmm. mother, and it can be applied to the good enough father as well. And we forget that. We feel like we have to be the perfect parents. And if we're, if we're not the perfect parents, we won't get the perfect child. And if we don't have the perfect child, we're going to feel bad about ourselves. And so I think we have to remember, as Madeline said, it's, it's not as complicated as we're making it, that you, you know, the good enough parent is actually really good for your child as well as really good for you. And, and the other thing I wanted to say is, it's kind of like building up your child's immune system as a parent. So if you never expose them to any germs, like failures as a germ, or you know, disappointment, or the kid doesn't, you know, the, the friend, kicks them out of the click or you know whatever happens and you don't um, you know give them an opportunity to be exposed to those germs then when they are in college or when they are 23 years old and this is a true story a friend of mine who's a producer on a on a uh, the today show said um, you know a new person a new person was hired 23 years old right out of college and he said, we need this thing right now, we're going live. And she said, oh, just a minute, I'm tucking my Blackberry. Mm -hmm. And he said, I would have been fired for that. I would have been fired for that. But these are, this is what happens, this person had no sort of, you know, their immune system was very weak. And so this person had never experienced the kinds of things that she needed to have experienced. Um, and so as parents, my advice would be the best thing you can do is to help build up their immune systems, let them be naturally exposed to the germs of childhood. Yeah, and I, I would agree with all of that, and I would piggyback on that with the research that's out there on how kindness, generosity, and gratitude are connected to happiness. And so in cultivating them within the family, not simply getting your kid to volunteer in some country that needs it, that's great too, but within your own family, having them pay attention to what's actually going on. If someone needs help, if someone needs a door opened, teaching good manners, and the kindness, generosity, and then finally the gratitude. Just asking regularly and expressing yourself as a parent what you're grateful for, because that actually increases your happiness, and very little of it increases happiness quite a lot. And so I would add to that picture of um, the resilience and the perseverance that come with the kind of parent that you described and the kind of parent you described, that there is this, this other thing as well that's and well established by research too. Well, you're never going to have a cheaper therapy session than today. <laughs> so much. Thank you. Lori Gottlieb writes for The Atlantic and is a New York Times best-selling author. Polly Young Eisendrath is a psychologist, author, and mindfulness meditation teacher. Madeline Levine wrote the book Teach Your Children Well: Parenting for Authentic Success. Katie Couric is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author. Their conversation was held in 2012 at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado.
Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go so you never miss an episode. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.